0: we need to change the mentality of the male in Papua New Guinea to understand that women are not competing with you. Actually, women are great partners. They're great leaders. They're great visionaries. They're great problem solvers. The more that you actually have us involved, the more prosperous your community or your society will be. Like You see those examples all over the world.
1: Raise 1000 Voices is the podcast on a mission to raise the voices of the clever, creative and courageous women across the world. I am your host, Jacqueline Nagel, and I invite you to join me in conversations with women who will inspire and empower you as we explore just how to lift our levels of self-trust, to reclaim the narrative and to use our voice to go after exactly what we want, doing it with strength, power and grace.
2: So, I would love to welcome Bronwyn Wright to the next conversation in Raise 1000 Voices. Bronwyn, welcome to the program. Hi, how's it going? It's going well at this end. So, Bronwyn, for those listening along at home, whereabouts in the world are you right now? Right at the moment, I'm in Brisbane. When I'm not in Brisbane, I'm in Falcon, New Guinea. And yeah, they're my two homes. Amazing, and we're going to unpack what those two homes are all about in our conversation <laughs> today for our audience to get to know you a little bit better. Could we just uh, like kind of unpack over a five to seven minute journey that high look view of who Bromm Wright is and who she was as a little girl and how she got to be Bromm Wright sitting have a conversation with me in May twenty twenty three. Right, excellent. So I was born here in Australia
0: to Papua New Guinean parents. So, my grandparents and parents were naturalized Papua New Guineans come 1975 when PNG became independent from Australia. So, all of my family growing up are Papua New Guinean. And so, went back to PNG. I grew up in PNG just like my older brother and sister did, went to primary school in PNG. Then when it came to high school, it was kind of the dumb thing, if possible, for your family to send your children to high school in Australia or overseas. Well, boarding school, basically. So my older brother and sister came to Brisbane and did their high schooling years at boarding school. And then when it was my turn, so did I. So I came down to Brisbane and then did five years of boarding. Yeah. Did my high school here. Then from that, I, uh, you know, did some higher education. So I went to University of Queensland. And yeah, I got some work experience here in Australia, which was fantastic. Yeah, I was lucky enough to have some great jobs in kind of, well, I studied business and international business marketing and communication. So that was kind of my wheelhouse. Then, out of university, I just needed to, you know, get some experience that wasn't the experience that I've had in PNG. Because in PNG, our family owns quite a large retail business that is very well known. So lots of work experience there as I was growing up, but I needed to kind of have my own. And I was lucky enough quite early on to. Work in a wonderful organization that is where I actually met my husband. So that was amazing. Look, I worked for a couple of different organizations in that marketing and communications role. Then a really great contact of mine, uh, she moved to a commercial corporate law firm, you know, one of Australia's biggest in a business development role. And so she wasn't a lawyer, but she was assisting them with kind of making sure that. She was bridging the gap between, I guess, commerciality of a client and then bringing the expertise to the lawyer to provide a solution for something that they were going through, and that was really interesting to me. So I um, went, "Yep, okay, I'm in." And then I spent yeah, nearly 15 years in commercial slash corporate law firms and some of the biggest in Australia. And my last one was, you know, one of the biggest that I think, you know, is currently operating in in a lot of regional centres. And then I had my children. So I took a step back a little bit and, and decided to have some really fantastic time with them, went back to work. And unfortunately, my grandfather passed away. And as I said, he wanted to continue the work that he and our family had started in that philanthropic space in the areas of health and education, and PNG. And I was asked whether or not I wanted to kind of step up and step into a particular role that would help do that i was like you know what this is kind of what i've always wanted to do actually if you ask my sister-in-law who's known me forever i always told her that i really wanted to work at the starlight foundation because for me i just wanted to provide kids with an opportunity that maybe somehow they wouldn't get somewhere else yeah. And so when this came up and I was talking to her about it, she goes, this is just what you've always kind of wanted to do. And now you've been given this wonderful gift to do it in the name of people that you love and care for in a country that you love and care for. She goes, this kind of ticks all your boxes. So yeah, I jumped in and we celebrate our seven year birthday, the foundation that is in a couple of weeks' time and what we've done in seven years, I still kind of pinch myself. So,
2: amazing!
0: So, first of all, what is your role with the
2: foundation?
0: Yeah, so I'm the chief executive officer of the foundation. So I basically am the person who, you know, the buck stops with me or the keener stops with me, I guess. (laughs) I guess it would be really a good opportunity for me to kind of explain how the foundation works because, in a way, we don't fundraise. So, what happens is that the foundation is the largest shareholder of our business conglomerate in PNG. And I represent the largest shareholder. So, I sit on the board of this particular company, which is primarily a family owned business. And so, it's quite a symbiotic relationship that we have. So, when the business does well, then the shareholders and the major, yeah, the major shareholder. Does really well. And then basically, yeah, we utilize those funds to do some good work in PNG. So my brother Ian actually is the chairman of, of the Brian Bell Group of Companies. And I always, you know, we always joke, he goes, you know, he's busy making the money and I'm busy giving it away. So that's our, that's
2: our (laughs) role. That's a perfect relationship, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. And and he goes, well, isn't
0: that kind of what you have done all of your life is, you know, (laughs) you know, ask mum and dad for money and spend away. And I was like, oh, you can tell. So I'm the youngest of three. And yeah.
2: so. And the banter is according to that.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely it is. Absolutely it is. <laughs> Love that. So,
2: so what does the foundation, and it is for those who are watching by audio, uh, sorry, listening by audio rather than watching video, is the Sir Brian Bell Foundation. What is the work that you do and what parts of it really make you immensely proud that you get the opportunity to do this?
0: Mm.
2: It's a great question
0: because I thought it would be easy to say what we do I think, but in some ways it's not because we do have quite a vast remit. I guess when you talk about health and education, I talk about it in the pillars in which we kind of focus on, but health and education, when you put those pillars in the environment of Papua New Guinea, there is so much to do, so much to be done, and so many people want to do good things in those particular focus areas. But sometimes it's just a very difficult landscape to navigate. Just everywhere, especially in an NGO space, is very hard. I understand that. PNG is, is a very interesting place to do business, let alone operate as somebody who's trying to do kind of foundational work or, you know, work in the NGO capacity. So basically the work that we do is, as I said, pillars of health and education. Health and education go hand in hand. So people go, oh, you know, can you put a bucket of foundation family members in the health bucket and, you know, foundation family members in the education bucket? And there's actually not many that just sit in the one bucket. A lot of them, you know, intersect, of course, especially in the environment of Papua New Guinea. And so what we do is basically we kind of experience, we learn, we listen, we respond to, I guess, the needs of Papua New Guineans in the areas of health and education. And we do that by forging our own particular programs that might come about with us understanding an issue well enough that we think, look, we can actually provide a step forward here, or we can provide a program that will assist in this regard, or we can actually be an enabler to people who are doing really great things on the front line. You know, who are we to come in to suggest that we know better than you when you've been trying to do so much for so long? We just give them the step up. We give them the support they require, whether that be financially, whether it be manpower, woman power you know, machinery, advocacy, access to conversations with decision makers, you know, whatever we can provide to assist, you know, making sure something is getting done in a particular problem area, then that's what we do. So, and we partner with lots of great government agencies. We partner with lots of wonderful NGOs. And as I said, then we do things, you know, under our own banner as well.
2: Amazing. So for those who are not as familiar with Papua New Guinea as an environment, what does make it so unique? You mentioned a couple of times, you know, it's it's a very different environment. What stands out for you that creates a unique foundation?
0: Look, I think that for a small country in terms of area, we are a land of, you know, many, many, you know, tribes and cultures and languages and dialects. And so that's really interesting. The cultural aspect of Papua New Guinea is so diverse and so wonderful, but it does present sometimes some challenges. Then the other thing is our lack of infrastructure. So we don't actually have the roads that we should, the airports that we should, the hospitals that we should, the schools that we should to enable us to get around the country and deliver necessity to the people of PNG as easy as we should. And the terrain is mm. so crazy. So, you know, one second you're, you know, kind of level and then the next minute you're, uh, you know, I guess think about the Kokoda Trail and you hear all the stories, you know, when you are in high school in Australia, you really hear about, you know, World War Two and Kokoda and Australia and New Zealand and, and you get told about how treacherous that particular trail was, you know, that's just one particular area. I mean, those Kokodas are everywhere in Park McKinney. And so it makes it very difficult for you to be able to deliver solutions. So the government finds it difficult, private enterprise finds it difficult, and NGOs and people trying to do really great things find it difficult.
2: So what do you think has been the key to you making some traction and being able to work within those challenging circumstances? Look, there's a couple of
0: things, truthfully. I think I'm truly, truly blessed, well, the foundation is blessed to have the 100% support of the Bell Group of companies. So the Bell Group has operated in Papua New Guinea for, you know, over six decades. And yeah. so we have a vast logistical and transport system we can deliver all over the country because we have figured out how to do so. And we have partnered with wonderful people who have figured out those unique ways to get things to really remote places. So I kind of ride on the coattails of all those lessons learned from the six decades of business and kind of jump on the people's expertise in the group to get it done. So that's certainly something that I go, oh my goodness, I'm so pleased that we're able to (laughs) navigate this because of this experience. It's amazing. And I think too, you know, our group of companies is one that um, we have over 1300 team members across Papua New Guinea who work within our company structure and all of them are support squad members. So, you know, foundation support squad. So we have lots of initiatives internally, but also when the foundation or our foundation family members, as I call them, need assistance. Our team members are deployed to make sure that, you know, there's assistance provided and there's, you know, they really take that seriously and it, you know, it gets things done.
2: Yeah. Yeah. When you talk about get things done and obviously there's things that you do to enable others, there's also your own programs and initiatives. If you Mm -hmm. look back over the last seven years, What is that initiative or that program or that piece of support that really stands out that you're really proud of for what it managed to achieve? Wow, that's again a really interesting
0: question because the things that we've been able to be a part of or kind of bring light to has actually been beyond my expectations. So there's so many things I'm proud of and sometimes it's not actually the big things too, it's sometimes the little things. Yeah. I think that you know there's certainly some big things that stand out for lots of different reasons and not particularly because they're big it's because of what was behind it whether it be you know a personal lesson that i was told or something that i thought oh wow i didn't think i could achieve that i didn't think that that was going to be done and it was but you know we we launched the subrina bell foundation 7 years ago on world blood donor day and I didn't want the foundation, and nor did our family or our group really want to launch the foundation just as a bit of a "hey, we're launching" without kind of somebody understanding initially from the launch what our purpose was or have an understanding of what we would be kind of be doing. So, blood donation is a huge issue in PNG. So it's you know considerably under World Health Organization guidelines. You know, us cold chain storage is a huge issue. You know, equipment facility capacity is a huge issue. And so for a year prior to the launch, we worked really hard with the Port Moresby General Hospital and key decision makers there around, well, how could we partner and how could we bring blood donation and a new wave of blood donors, you know, to Port Moresby General Hospital but, you know, to the blood donation program. So we actually put a program in place called the Youth Blood Drive and it was actually PNG's largest youth-driven health focus and initiative and I was immensely proud of it because there was people who said, man, you are not going to get people to listen to you about blood donation because culturally it was not something people did nor did they understand. So there was, you know, without the education piece, People were thinking, well, once they give blood, then that blood doesn't actually rejuvenate, that they lose blood and uh, they become sick. Yeah. And so it was a huge education piece and kind of breaking it down, what those issues were, what those barriers were, cultural, language, education, even stigma around, well, if I give blood and it gets tested and something comes back and it's you know telling me I've got something, well, how do I deal with that? None. And so we worked on this program really, really hard and then we launched it and then we saw blood donations rise. We've seen a huge new wave of blood donors who come in every three months. You know, corporate houses have gotten on board. Our teams across the country in the Brunbell Group, you know, every three months there's blood donations we have built the new transfusion center, which is a center of excellence around all things blood, whether it be internally focused for the hospital and patient outcomes, or people come into the blood bank and donate. So I'm really proud of that because yeah, it was kind of a idea that people told all of us involved, "You're like you, you guys are crazy. There is no way." you guys are going to get you know, the traction. But we did and we continue to. And even to this day, we still uh, work very closely with the hospital and work really closely with the blood bank and the transfusion centre, and it's a key focus. So I'm really proud of that. I'm really, really proud of the stuff that we're doing around menstrual health and hygiene and yeah. the education around that, the, again, Cultural stigma and taboo is a huge issue. Um, So the education piece around there, but access to product is a huge issue. And the work that we're doing with a a local NGO, social enterprise—I should really say—again, I'm incredibly proud of the work that they've done in such a short period of time. So that's a fantastic partnership. And you know, anything that you know we can do to keep girls in school, I'm all for, and I will do my best to help. So, you know, we don't have, product is really hard to find and when you find it or have access to it, it's extremely expensive and, you know, also it's not sustainable. So, we don't have in PNG a, I guess, a garbage disposal system like there is in Australia. And so, you know, lots of rubbish gets flushed down, you know, rivers and streams and contaminate water. There's a lot of ultimate other Health outcomes that are at risk, then. And, you know, so disposable product isn't really the best solution the either. Yeah. 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 We've got a social enterprise called Queen Pads in PNG, who, you know, the founder and Shirley is an absolute powerhouse. And the ladies who work in Queen Pads are amazing. And they have designed and tested and pivoted and evolved these wonderful products. And so they do sell them. However, the foundation actually purchases a lot of the product and then through their menstrual health and awareness campaigns, they travel the country and go to schools, go to organisations, go to corporate houses. They've gone to prisons. They've gone to domestic violence shelters. They've gone, you name it, and Shirley and her team go to and distribute product, but more importantly, educate women and girls and you know the men in the community which is amazing to see about menstrual hygiene and health and ultimately
2: how it all fits in and so I'm super yeah that's I'm pretty proud of that. I find it so extraordinary and you know because in Australia there is an element of that in disadvantaged communities but not to the level you know, the fact that this is something that enables women, young girls to go to school, the fact that this mm-hmm. enables women to live a normal life. Like,
0: mm-hmm.
2: you know, you sit here sometimes, don't you? You say to yourself, it is the 21st century. Yep. And our neighbors in New Guinea do not have these fundamentals. And even as you said, the knowledge, the education. Yeah. They do not have like, the knowledge. Yeah. That's a huge eye opener for me,
0: I think, is the knowledge gap.
2: Mm.
0: And, you know, I've got two teenage girls and so we're dealing at home with, you know, that time in their life. And it's really interesting. I think a couple of years ago when I would talk to them about some of the work that I was doing, they didn't really quite get it. But now they're of the age and they're both in high school and those discussions with their friends and certainly with us, you know, they're like, oh, This is really interesting. And I said to um, my eldest the other day, I said, you know, wouldn't it be really difficult if you had your period and you weren't actually able to go to school? Mm -hmm. And she just looked at me and I was like, what if you had your period and then you weren't able to leave your room and come down and be part of the family for the time that you were actually on your period? What if you had to live separately to us? And I said, but also, what if you were on your period and Mum couldn't provide you, or you couldn't provide yourself with the product that you needed to, you know, be with yourself every day? And she was like, it just kind of clicked for her in particular. And a couple of weeks ago, I was uh, I took both of my daughters to pack a forty foot container here in Brisbane through one of our partners, Project Yumi, and we've actually been donated through a wonderful organization called the No Roads Foundation which operate in in Australia but do work in PNG through their extensive network bonds has provided them and therefore us you know 30,000 pairs of reusable period product and i'm trying to get them to Papua New Guinea so that will happen very very shortly but i was able to show my girls while we were packing the container what that looked like and they walked into these storage sheds of these boxes of you know period product that they do see on the shelves of Coles, and they were like, "So you're going to help this get to PNG so girls can go to school?" I was like, "Well, yeah. yeah," and I said, "Because, well, I just couldn't imagine if you're in a position." I said, "We're in an absolute privileged position where, you know, nothing stops you guys getting an education." Yeah. The only person who gets in your way is yourself in regards yeah. to you getting an education, I said, you know. And it was really interesting that kind of the switch you, you going could just,
2: on. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So that was I'm just, really proud of that. You just mentioned as well, just something that I wanted to unpack, you know, being having to stay separate to the family. So culturally, because and also because there's no knowledge, is that still happening, is it? Where you actually absolutely. Need to stay removed from family. Correct.
0: Yeah. So there's lots of um, communities that you know still operate that way. So you know, women who are or girls who I don't mean who are going through their menstrual cycle are unable to join the family, nor are they able to cook either because they're seen yeah. as being unclean. Very similar, actually, to some of the cultural practices and and stigma around those who menstruate particularly in India there's a, yeah. a there's a very interesting correlation to some of those particular practices and the ones in Papua New Guinea so and I've had an extensive conversation with some um you know people who work in India in this space
2: and yeah it's very interesting some of those correlations that is interesting because I actually I hadn't thought it was really something still going on so even for myself that's a little bit of an eye opener what is it that stands in the way? Because we're specific about talking to women like yourself who are doing things to make a difference, but also my workers with women to raise their voices. And in Australia, that's kind of sometimes it's almost like a paradox because we're so privileged, our baseline is so high that sometimes I feel like you know like literally like you said to your daughter, like the only thing stopping women in Australia raising their voices and using them for good is themselves you know and so when we look at what are these kind of what are the things that do hold women back that are significant and foundational so we're talking about menstrual health and hygiene what are the other things that really stand in their way of being able of accessibility and being able to you know actively participate in the world
0: yeah look i think you know culturally it is a male dominated society in png so opportunity goes to the male rather than the female they are you know. Seen to be the person who looks after the family, looks after the children, you know, tends to gardens, you know, subsistence farming, depending on, you know, what they're doing Mm. and where they are. Women, usually in Papua New Guinea, aren't, you know, provided the opportunities that men are. So we're trying to move the needle there. We're trying, I mean, our government doesn't represent our country. So we have. Predominantly male government. We try and get women in government and into, you know, really important seats and ministerial portfolios or people in decision making, you know, platforms. And it's very, very difficult because culturally the men kind of believe that they should have the opportunity and not the women. So we're trying to actually kind of take a step back and go, okay, well, you know, I wouldn't say you can't. Teach an old dog new tricks. But in some ways, we're stepping back and we're going, okay, we need to change the mentality of the male in Papua New Guinea to understand that women are not competing with you. Actually, women, you know, are great partners. And, but also at times, they're great leaders, they're great visionaries, they're great problem solvers, you know. The more that you actually have us involved, the more prosperous your community or your society will be. Like you see those, you know, examples all over the world. Yeah. And so we're going and having those conversations really early in the piece. And, you know, the work we do with the Grass Skirt Project around gender based violence. Yes, it's a very, very, it's a huge, huge issue. Like even saying it's a huge issue doesn't actually give it the credence that you should. It's a huge issue in PNG. However, we're trying through a lot of the programs under the Grass Skirt Project really kind of take a step back and get into those, you know, younger minds of, hang on, this is what a healthy relationship looks like. This is what a healthy work relationship is between a male and a female and bring everybody kind of on the journey of a new way of thinking of, you know, guys, opportunities should exist equally for both sexes, not just males in PNG. And the more we kind of open the doors to PNG women, the more we're going to prosper. And I'm just hoping, I really hope I, I want to snap my fingers and it kind of happened, but we see it all <laughs> over the world, don't we? We're really yeah, we do. A no different in a way to lots of countries and lots of circumstance and examples, but it's just really difficult. It's really difficult. But, you know, it's about identifying to those males in key decision-making roles or you know, platforms of influence that realise that, you know, having women in key decision-making roles and platforms of influence is equally as important and working with them. And yeah, unfortunately, you just got to kind of plug away.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Is this why the foundation settled on the pillars of education and health? The pillars of education
0: and health, truthfully, I think they're the greatest areas of need in PNG. And as I said, you know, there's so much to be done within each of them. So it gives us quite a broad brush to paint a picture with. And so I do like (laughs) that it's health and education. But I think that, you know, when we have access to education, especially when girls do and when women do, that can only lead to prosperity. And I think that when we also, are providing Papua New Guineans with access to healthcare that is not only a right, but a necessity, and they should have. That can only lead to prosperity as a nation as well. So anything that we can do to help that movement, I'm happy yeah. to kind of roll my sleeves up for.
2: Amazing. I'd love to ask two questions. And um, the first <laughs> one is, your experience over the last seven years, what continues to break your heart? And then the flip side of that, based on that last seven years, what actually gives you hope for what comes next?
0: I think what breaks my heart is seeing, and I don't want to get emotional about this, but it's the children. So yeah. p kids, the Picaninnies, and the how a lot of them live and how a lot of them actually don't know any different. And actually what breaks my heart is that not only do they not know any different, Different, but their parents or their grandparents don't either. Yeah. And so they just think, oh, well, this is the way that it is. So that breaks my heart. And so we do a lot of work in the space of children, you know, whether it be assisting them if they're in a disadvantaged circumstance or in a circumstance that is unsafe or access to educational opportunities where they may not have access to those opportunities before. So, yeah, that gets me every time. So, yeah. But I think what also gives me hope is this new younger generation of Papua New Guineans. Man, they are awesome. So, the conversations and the access to information now. Like I know that social media has, you know, its pros and cons. The internet has its pros and cons, but what it's really done for interested Get up and go Papua New Guineans has been accessing education opportunities or health opportunities or, you know, circumstances around the world that are happening and they're actually starting to ask questions that they've never really asked before. They're saying, yeah. hang on, why isn't our government providing us free education in X, Y, and Z? Hang on, why our key hospitals in these particular areas not getting the appropriate funding from government? We pay taxes. You know, we're working three jobs to make sure that our household has rice this week. Where are we going to be supported? And it's very interesting. It's it's a completely new type of conversation and understanding that actually this shouldn't be the way that it is. And yeah. I'm gonna ask those questions and I'm gonna demand some answers and then what can I actually do about it to change my family, my personal circumstance, you know, my community circumstance if it's in my power to? I see that every day in the work that we do. People just yeah. wanting to do good things, people wanting to change their circumstance, change their children's circumstance or their family or community circumstance, and are willing to just
2: educate themselves on how best to do that. Yeah. And that's really. That's pretty cool. I think once you start hearing questions and a sense of curiosity emerge, yeah. you can't help but start to generate hope because questions and curiosity is what changes the world. When it comes to what you would like us to know most about PNG and what's needed to, you know, really shift this needle that you're talking about, what would you say to all of us listening? Don't always believe what you read. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting. Look, this is not a new scenario for um Papua New Guinea. I mean, look, sure, we sometimes need to be made accountable for some not so great decisions that certain people in high positions of, you know, in PNG make. So I get all of that. And there is accountability and I'm all for that. I mean, I ask for accountability every day in the work that, you know, the foundation does and that I do. And I hold myself accountable, so of course. Mm. But there's certainly a lot of conversation, articles, people running stories on news platforms that are really just a really small snippet of Papua New Guinea and a really small portion of Papua New Guineans who might be contributing to that being in the news and it's not reminiscent of Papua New Guinea as a whole, nor Papua New Guineans. It is an amazing country. It um, has so much to offer, and the people are extraordinary. Papua New Guineans are awesome. I'm a proud Papua New Guinean, so I will advocate for Papua New Guineans um, all day long, but they are. It's just unfortunate that the circumstances around them sometimes make you to you know, have some poor judgment at times and not do the right things. But sometimes you do the wrong things for the right reasons, but someone needs to really unpack that for you, for you to understand that. And a lot of that happens in PNG. So you don't want to accept the behavior, but you also need to understand why the behavior is there.
2: So it's contextualization. Absolutely. Absolutely. But go to PNG. It is Gorgeous. It is
0: a beautiful, beautiful country.
2: Well, I will make sure actually it's been on my list for a while and I will make sure it stays there. Bronwyn, as we wrap up the conversation, there are some questions we ask of everybody. Um Uh and the first one is who or what inspires you? A lot, actually. I think at the moment, because I'm just
0: really like roll my sleeves up in mummy hood at the moment. I have three children. That I think what inspires me are my kids because I really do, especially in the work that I do every day, I really always have them in mind. I think, you know, what if this was me or what if this was my husband? What if this was my family? But what truthfully, what if this was these were my children? And so they definitely inspire me to in the work that I do every day. But also, they inspire me to kind of, you know, get out of bed every day and kind of go, right, you got to get yourself together, woman. And, (laughs) you know, these kids need you and want you and want to learn from you. And so, try and be the best person you can be each day. Sometimes you fail miserably, right? Yeah. And you're not the person nor the parent that you want to be. But,
2: yeah, usually it inspires me to try and do good every day. Love that. I love that so much. I think all of us who do have children or are surrounded by children can relate to that. Books or podcasts, Bronwyn? Oh, I read lots, but I also love podcasts. Um, I know. If you're an avid reader, are you like me? It took me by surprise when I realized how much I loved a good podcast. (laughs) It really
0: did. But I actually find them fantastic, especially when you kind of have that dead time in the car, like in carpooling. And, you know, you drive the kids and you go, you know what, I don't want to hear this song on the radio for the fifth time. And you chuck a podcast on and you go, wow, I think I may have actually learned something there. Or that person, I didn't actually hold them in high regard. And now <laughs> I really think they're kind of cool. So I read a lot. I love Patricia Cornwall. She's Ooh, my guilty. my favourite yep.
2: fiction author.
0: Oh, my goodness. Dr. K. Scarpetta.
2: Now, yeah. what a power Mary she is. So I've I've been I, like, I like both because you've got Patricia and the alter ego is Nora.
0: Yes. Oh,
2: honestly, love, 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 love. I
0: think one of my favourite kind of books that inspire me work-wise, though, is the book that Melinda Gates actually wrote and The Moment of Lift. If you haven't read that. Right behind I, me. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. I think I've read it like 20 times because there's times when sometimes I need a little inspo. Or I get a little bit, you know, sometimes a bit down because yeah. it's a bit monotonous or you think you're not making traction and then suddenly something happens. But it's those times where you're kind of stagnant that you go, oh, God, I need a little bit of inspiration. And that's my go-to. I read that and I go, okay, Mine, you can do this. But my podcast
2: guilty pleasures. Oh, I love Armchair Expert by Dax Shepard. <laughs> that is coming up so much at the moment, and I yeah, I must admit I stumbled yeah. across about twelve months ago,
1: and I have oh, not really? let it go. So
0: yeah, so I have actually. For I've been an armchair as they uh, call it since day dot because I really do like Dax, but their level of guests, but also yeah, he's an intriguing person yeah. in himself, and I love that. I listen to Mel Robbins. I, what else do I do? There's
2: a few others, but if I've yeah. got
0: time, I'll do an armchair expert for sure. Yeah.
2: Yeah. No, no I'm a little bit, I'm getting a little bit obsessed. And I've actually just discovered another one, which is very different to that, but it's the Huberman Project, which is all about neuroscience. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. So, so I'm getting a little bit geeky with my podcast these days. Love it. When you think about you said, you know, you're born in Australia, raised in PNG, back to school. There's a lot of us we can remember back to being young children and what it was about that what about that young Bromwen? Did you bring through to the woman that you are now? Like what it still exists in you that was part of that little girl?
0: Possibly my cheekiness. I definitely I talk a lot. I've always <laughs> talked a lot. And my my family thinks I can talk underwater if need be. So definitely that. And I think that, you know, conversation and the ability to talk to people has really helped me. But talking is one thing. It's the listening element for me Mm. is really important, but absolutely talking. I never was quiet when I was a kid and (laughs) certainly am not quiet now. (laughs) But yeah, what else? I don't know. I kind of always feel like even though I'm older, I still kind of feel quite young and cheeky. And yeah, I look at my kids and go, oh my goodness, I've got three kids and two of them are teenagers and in high school. And I go,
2: goodness but then I kind of think oh bro and I still feel like I'm 16 (laughs) yeah yeah I actually actually relate to that my baby turns 21 this year and I'm like how did that happen like where did did that happen yeah (laughs) exactly because I still feel 21 myself so how is that child 21 (laughs) yeah I think too that you know
0: we um growing up we've always lived pretty simply you know yeah I think that yeah, that's really assisted me too. Like, not a lot of those bigger things, the nice to haves, really kind of impress me too much. Love that. So, I'd rather kind of, I guess, the success that we've had in our business and in the foundation and even just as a family kind of just gets given away, or we kind of prefer to enjoy things together or with other people yeah. or provide them things to enjoy. So, I think that certainly has continued from, you know, me growing up. So I love that.
2: Love that so much. And Bronwyn, as we close out the conversation, is there any words of wisdom, I guess, and probably more for women who feel like there's something more for them to do or a bigger impact to make, but they hold themselves back? What would you say to them?
0: I don't know what I would say to them directly, but I will share this and this has stayed with me because, you know, I think as women... We do at times, you know, I even, you know, was quite vulnerable to you at the beginning, going, you know, this is kind of not my thing. Like, yeah, I can talk underwater and things, but not in these particular circumstances. I, yeah, I shy away from these conversations a little bit. But somebody said to me, when people tell you that you can't do things or you kind of feel like you fish out of water or that, you know, you just know that you can do something, but you just don't know what. But what's holding you back might be your belief in yourself. This wonderful person in my life said to me, All you have to say to yourself is, underestimate me. That'll be fun. I love that. And I keep that close to me every day, actually, because it's amazing how many people have said, Over the past seven years, that the things that we wanted to do, the things that we were bringing a voice to or a light to or programs that we were initiating, people we were engaging may not have been the right thing or that they wouldn't kind of get traction or succeed in a particular way. And yeah, so that's kind of a driving force of me is if you tell me that I can't do something or something's not going to work, I'll try really, really hard to prove you wrong.
1: (laughs) I love that. And I think that's the perfect way to end this underestimate, me, That'll be fun. Bronwyn,
0: thank you so
2: much for your time today. Thank you so much. It's been great.
1: Thank you for joining me for this episode of Raise 1000 Voices. I hope you've enjoyed the conversation as much as I have. And if you have, then I would love you to subscribe to and rate the show on your favorite platform. Our show notes, resources and links to all our socials can be found at tuesday.com.au forward slash podcast. And if you'd like to join a growing community of clever, creative and courageous women who know that they want to be seen, heard and remembered, then join us in our Facebook group, Raise 1000 Voices. Until we speak again, take care and remember, you were born to raise your voice.